And welcome to the Deep Dive Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Nick Espinoza, and we're going to be talking about all things cybersecurity, cyber warfare, and technology related. And I think we're one of the only ones out there that's doing that right now. If you'd like to be part of the radio show in any way, shape, or form, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can send us an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. We have an action-packed show as always. There's always a lot to cover, so stick around with us as we deep dive into a topic and we catch up on everything else. So without further ado... Let's begin. And we've got a great week for you. It's an action-packed show, so we're just going to dive right in and start with the news. But stick around for the deep dive. You're not going to want to miss it. And let's get going. And before we get started with our news items, I just wanted to say that my heart goes out to Highland Park, Illinois. Uh, if you've been a longtime listener, you know that I live in the Chicagoland area. And like Highland Park, uh, you know, I, I also live in a suburb, not downtown Chicago directly, but I have a lot of colleagues, I have a lot of friends, I have a lot of clients in the Highland Park area, Northbrook as well, that whole area, and my heart just goes out to them. It, it, it has been a tragic, tragic 4th of July as I'm sitting here talking to you, you know, and it's basically on in the background as they are hunting and searching for this shooter, which as hopefully when you're listening to this, if you're not listening to to me live, I'm really hoping that uh, essentially they have found this person and we've got some more understanding, but this is just absolutely getting ridiculous. I've, I've talked about you know, just Uvalde, Texas and Buffalo, New York and all those kinds of things as it relates to online. And I'm not going to dive into everything here, but I just wanted to say that, that, you know, these these are situations that just simply shouldn't be. And, you know, our goal obviously is to balance, uh, you know, the rights that we all enjoy, that we all share, you know, along with just making sure that people that are truly, truly unhealthy, whether it's mentally, whatever it is, just do not have access to weapons. So here we are. I'm sure there's going to be a debate. I'm sure I might get pushback on you. But, you know, if you are listening to me and you are in Highland Park, I'm glad you're alive. I hope everybody in your family is safe. And with that, let's move on because we do have a lot of ground to cover this week. And in Roe v. Wade news, we actually have to talk about Google because Google is planning on increasing our privacy because of Roe. And quite frankly, this actually kind of angers me. And here's here's what's going out. Hear me out. I think this new move really underscores just how awful Google has always been with our privacy. Now, this is coming directly from their own blog post over this situation in the aftermath of Roe v. Wade. Uh, if you recall, I did my radio show prior to the decision coming down to lift Roe, essentially on the expectation that when it was lifted due to the leak of a draft document, here's what we could expect on the privacy side. And by virtue of that big Big Tech is responding. Now, here we go. This is what Google said on their blog post, and I quote directly, Privacy matters to people, especially around topics such as their health. Given that these issues apply to healthcare providers, telecommunications companies, banks, tech platforms, and many more, we know privacy protections cannot be solely up to individual companies or states acting individually. That's why we've long advocated for a comprehensive and nationwide U.S. privacy law that guarantees protections for everyone, and we're pleased to see recent progress in Congress. I, quite frankly think they're lying through their teeth. That is my opinion. I don't think they want that rule. That directly hinders how they actually generate revenue. So while they may publicly advocate for that, they I, I would I would speculate they have an army of lobbyists quietly trying not to get that done. Now, that said, that is not the focus of this. I continue quoting from them. This is what we're getting at. 
And I quote, location history is a Google account setting that is off by default. And those that turn it on, we provide simple controls like auto delete so users can easily delete parts or all of their data at any time. Some of the places people visit, including medical facilities like counseling centers, domestic violence shelters, abortion clinics, fertility centers, addiction treatment facilities, weight loss clinics, cosmetic surgery clinics, and others can be particularly personal. Today, we're announcing that if our systems identify that someone has visited one of these places, we will delete these entries from location history soon after they visit. This change will take effect in the coming weeks. Now, first things first, location history is off by default. That would be amazing to me. Is that grandfathered in from when it wasn't? Only because usually when we are doing cybersecurity audits at corporations, not that anybody's looking at turning on all of these location things, but they're basically turning them on by default, meaning We see it usually on, never off. And if you're turning on things like the GPS in your phone and it's attached to Google Maps, they've still got you. They are still tracking all of this information. So I don't believe that as well. And we will talk about, uh, you know, having them, which, and for the record, I agree. Like if you're visiting, you know, a domestic violence shelter or whatever, you know, they shouldn't have been tracking that. That should be deleted automatically. So I applaud that move, but it also still angers me. But I digress. I want to continue with their statement before I dive in. And I once again quote, to further promote transparency and control for users, we also recently introduced Play's new data safety section that developers use to give people more information about how apps collect, share, and secure their data. For Google Fit and Fitbit, we give users settings and tools to easily access and control their personal data, including the option to change and delete personal information anytime. For example, Fitbit users who have chosen to track their menstrual cycles in the app can currently delete menstruation logs one at a time, and we will be rolling out updates to let users delete multiple logs all at once. Again, I'm glad they're enabling that feature, but here we are. And again, I quote Google, because I want you to hear them before you hear me. And I quote again, we remain committed to protecting our users against improper government demands for data, and we will continue to oppose demands that are overly broad or otherwise legally objectionable. We're committed to delivering robust privacy protections for people who use our products and will continue to look for new ways to strengthen and improve improve these protections. So that's end quote. Given the recent ruling in Roe, it makes sense that they would now roll out these features, but... When did it take the removal of a constitutional right to do this? Why did they even have to collect or track our location in the first places when we were going to healthcare clinics or, or, or things of that ilk in the first place? Why? They talk about transparency, but then we get breaking news stories over the years on the new ways that we are being tracked by Google or Facebook or Apple. Take your pick. The Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago broke that Google was allowing third-party contractors, employees unfettered, unredacted access into Gmail boxes for quote-unquote training purposes. Is that really taking our privacy into consideration? This is what I'm talking about. Now, I have to say this. If Roe is doing anything, this decision to overturn Roe is doing anything, it's making people aware of just how data mined we all are and just how much we willingly share on social media consequences be damned. Now, I'm glad they're doing this. Don't get me wrong, but they do not, and I repeat, not deserve a thank you for this. They deserve to be questioned on just how much more data they are getting. 
why is it when I go to the supermarket, that's okay for them to keep, but the hospital down the street is off limits? Why do they need both? And I understand that this is what they're doing. They're selling this location data you know, to third parties. Oh, Nick goes to his local supermarket constantly. So now the local supermarket knows this. The local supermarket can start sending me advertising. Why is this the business model that we have now chosen? If it's free to us, we're the product. This is a huge problem. And why do studies also show that overwhelmingly most people in the world are clueless about this kind of tracking and there's no real easy way to fully turn it off? It's utterly, utterly ridiculous to me. And if you listen to my daily podcast, I basically say my my ending for most of them are stay safe, stay online, and please attempt to stay private. And I say attempt to stay private because it's so impossible, unless we're going Amish here, to essentially maintain privacy in a data-driven world. Right now, as we develop the next evolution of the web, we have to figure out a better business model. I wouldn't mind paying a couple of dollars to Facebook or Google every month for these basic services, providing I knew there was zero tracking whatsoever. And there are also alternatives uh, for zero tracking. You don't have to use Google. You can use StartPage, which gives you anonymized Google results. So you're still getting Google results, even though um, you know they're not tracking you. Or you can go to DuckDuckGo and do the same thing. I mean, th- these are things that, that we have the ability for, but very few people even know what start pages or DuckDuckGo is, or, you know, oh, I have Gmail. Well, you can go get ProtonMail or Tutanota or any one of those that are more private that do not track you. But the world is now, I think, just starting to wake up to this. And I'm glad that's the one silver lining I can think of when 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 Roe hit is that as people are looking at this, they are essentially saying, wow, I am going to be data mined. I am living in a state where I no longer have, let's say, the right to an abortion. And by virtue of that, I could be criminalized, uh, you know, if if or I could become a criminal if if I get one. And now, you know what? I probably shouldn't be putting everything on my phone. I probably shouldn't be posting everything to Facebook where everybody can see everything. It's a huge, huge problem. And so that's where we are in society. Uh, Hopefully everybody gets aware, but Google does not deserve a thank you. They never should have done this in the first place. Too, Too little, too late, but I'm glad they're doing it now. And in science news, we've actually learned a ton about that plucky little planet known as Mars over the years, and in part... We have to thank Windows 98. Now, this is amusing. Here's what's going on. Given, obviously, just all the intense news over the last couple of weeks or so, I thought this would be an amazing one to do. So, courtesy of Tech Radar, patch management for the latest version of Windows might concern most of us here on Earth. But meanwhile, the European Space Agency's Mars Express spacecraft has received its very first update to the Windows 98-based system that runs it in 19 years. Now, the mission was first launched to discover signs of liquid water on Mars, including a suspected 20 by 30 kilometer lake of salty water buried under one and a half kilometers of ice on Mars's southern polar region. Now, the updates were conducted to Windows by the engineers from the Instituto Nazionale di Astrofisica, or INAF, that's in Italy, obviously, and I'm probably butchering that beautiful language, and it was fully funded by the Italian Space Agency. So, what basically does this mean? The agency said that the upgrade will enable the spacecraft to view Mars and its moon Phobos with better levels of detail. So a couple of fun points that this article didn't touch on that I went and looked. I'm not sure if this is actually Windows 98 
or Windows 98 Second Edition. I'm hoping it's Windows 98 SE or Second Edition that was way more stable than the original 98. Now, also, I'm wondering if they've ever had to deal with a blue screen of death. That was something that Windows 98 was notorious for. And if they did, how did they reboot the operating system? They have a back. They have a backup with Linux. Like, like, is this is this a Windows ninety eight in the history of Windows ninety eight? This is the only version that's never crashed. In which case, NASA, we want, or I should say, the European Space Agency, we want that too. Also, in terms of nerd stuff. I went looking up the latency for communicating from here to Mars. It takes anywhere from 5 to 20 minutes to contact Mars, depending on atmospheric and position, atmospheric conditions of the Earth, and the position of Earth to Mars right now. So, in other words, it would take them 20 minutes to start sending data, 5 to 20 minutes. Do they ever have packet loss? What happened there? I'd love to know. So this was really interesting. I thought this would be an amusing uh, piece for uh, you know for this week, just given everything. But Windows 98 is helping us explore Mars, and that's something we should all smile about at some point. And I thought this would be a fun news item. Quote, put down your phone, get a life, end quote. That is from the guy who actually invented the cell phone. Now, here's what's going on, and this this just amused me to no end. The inventor of the world's first cell phone says that he is stunned by how much time people now waste on their de- devices, basically telling everybody to get a life. Now, Martin Cooper, this is the inventor, age 92, made that declaration during an interview with BBC Breakfast uh, this past Thursday, responding to a co-host who claimed that she basically spent an upwards of five hours per day on her phone. And this is what prompted Martin Cooper to say, and I quote, do you really? You really spend five hours a day? Get a life. And then he burst into laughter. Now, Mr. Cooper wanted each person to have their own phone number. That is what he calls his greatest accomplishment. Until that time when he invented the cellular phone, phone numbers had only been associated with places like your home, your desk, and on occasion, cars. Motorola, this is a company that basically um, Cooper was working for, poured millions of dollars into Cooper's project. And it basically took him and his team just three months to make the phone, given that they had used similar technology to previously put together police radios. Once the device was completed, it was named the Motorola Dynatac 8000X. Now, think about the cell phone that you could be listening to to me on right now. The very first cell phone weighed two and a half pounds. It was 10 inches long, and it lasted just 25 minutes before it ran out of battery And it took 10 hours to recharge. And for the record, what I think is probably one of the most baller moves ever, on April 3rd, 1973, Cooper made the very first ever cell phone call using the Dynatac 8000X. And he basically decided to call his competitor, Joel Engel, who was working as head engineer at AT AT&T, trying to beat Motorola to the cellular phone. Now, this event took place outdoors in front of reporters in Midtown Manhattan with Cooper dialing Engel's landline. And I quote, and this is a direct quote from the very first words spoken on a cell phone. Joel, this is Marty. I'm calling you from a cell phone, a real handheld portable cell phone. That was the first statement ever. Obviously, total baller move calling your competitor to let him know that you got beat to the punch. Now, the phone didn't actually hit the market for about another decade or so. It was finally released to the public in 1983. And back then, 
it cost you $4,000 for a phone that lasted 25 minutes, was 10 inches long, had weighed two and a half pounds, and took 10 hours to recharge. Got a little better by then, but wow, there you go. So that is essentially, I think, a really interesting thing. Put down your phone, except when you're listening to this, please listen to this, however you're listening to this, on the radio or otherwise. Otherwise, put down your phone, go get a life. And before we head over to the next segment, I wanted to let you know, and I've done this in a couple of shows, and I keep being reminded to do this, and I always forget. Uh, basically, if you didn't know, I put out content on a daily basis, not just here on the radio where you're listening to me, but actually I put it quite a lot of places, daily podcasts and videos on some of the latest trends, technology, cybersecurity, privacy, all these kinds of things I keep day to day. And some of the segments that I do for my news section or even my breaches of the week every Sunday gets translated into this show. But I do this as essentially a labor of love. You know, I don't have any kind of monetization anywhere. I just do it to keep people informed and to keep everybody interested. But you can find me uh, basically on Twitter or Facebook at slash Nick AESP or on LinkedIn and YouTube at slash Nick Espinoza. And please, Follow me. I'd love to hear. I'd love to basically get a shout out from you and, and you know, send me a message or whatever it is. Uh, but I do content daily and I hope you guys enjoy it. And so that is my quick blurb. And you're listening to Nick Espinosa of the Deep Dive Radio Show, a syndicated radio show here in podcast form on SoundCloud. And make sure to check your local listings so you can catch it on a radio station near you. And now for breaches of the week. And if you have a data breach to report that's local to you or the major news might have missed it, please, by all means, send it to me. And I'm glad to give you a shout out and include it in the radio show and possibly a daily video. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter and uh, Facebook at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can uh, email questions at securityfanatics.com. Again, that's questions at securityfanatics.com. And I'm more than happy to include your data breach and give you a shout out on the air. With that, let's begin. And the last few weeks in data breaches, because we're doing actually about three weeks or so where the data breaches, just given the funkiness of how June was laid out, there's a lot to cover. And as always, I'd like to thank the following people that sent me a lot of this information. That would be Jay Dance, Barrett Peterson, Barry Weisel, Vlad Korsovska, Steve Allen, uh, Chris Faulon, Darren Young, and Sue Zhuhao. Thank you very much, all of you. And again, if you've got a tip for me, send it my way. I'm happy to give you a shout out here on the air. And with that, let's start with an update on Amazon's 2019 data breach. Here's what's going on. A Seattle, a Seattle jury recently found Paige Thompson, a former Amazon software engineer, accused of stealing data from Capital One in 2019. It's technically a Capital One data breach that involved Amazon. They basically found her guilty of wire fraud on five and five counts of unauthorized access to a protected computer. Now, the Capital One hack was one of the largest security breaches in U.S. history at that time and compromised the data of about 100 million people in the country, along with 6 million Canadians, obviously up in Canada. Now, Ms. Thompson was arrested in July of that year after a GitHub user saw her post on a website sharing information about stealing data from the servers storing Capital One information. Again, Capital One was using Amazon. She was an Amazon engineer. Now, according to the Department of Justice, Ms. Thompson then used a tool she built herself to scan Amazon Web Services for misconfigured accounts. She then allegedly used one of those accounts to infiltrate Capital One servers and download over 100 million uh, people's data. 
Now, the jury has decided that Ms. Thompson violated the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and by, do- and by doing so, um, basically, her lawyers had argued that she had used the same tools and methods also used by uh, by ethical hackers, meaning even though she did this, she was essentially doing it in an ethical manner. The Justice Department, though, recently amended the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act to protect ethical or white hat hackers. I would be considered one of those. Now, as long as researchers are investigating or fixing vulnerabilities in quote-unquote good faith and aren't using the security holes they discover for extortion or malicious purposes, they can no longer be charged under the law. And for the record, essentially the way that works is this. If I am hired by a company, let's say, to to break into them or, or to run penetration testing on them, I basically am indemnified by the company. I am not going to steal data uh, from the company unless they say, you know what, we want you to steal something so that you can sh- prove to us that you've actually done it, in which case there are ethical ways for me to handle that information, such as encryption, all those kinds of things. All of this is essentially agreed upon. And so by virtue of that, I essentially am indemnified, meaning I'm allowed to break in now. The other side of that is the side where I discover a vulnerability. Let's say I have an Apple iPhone or Google Android and I discover a flaw in the iPhone. I can go to Apple and basically say, I'm a security researcher. Here is how I broke into the Apple, uh, your Apple device. They can validate that. And then from there, they fix that patch. They fix that with by basically creating an update or a patch that you can then download on your iPhone. That is fine as well. If I am then taking that exploit, not telling Apple and selling it to others so they can use it, now I'm basically breaking the law. In the same way that, let's say I found a misconfigured account for Capital One, I would basically not go into that beyond validating that, yes, this is indeed a flaw. My goal would be to again contact the cybersecurity team or the developers of Capital One to basically say, excuse me, I'm a little under the weather. I actually have a sinus infection, if you can hear it in my voice. Uh, But the show must go on. So I would go to Capital One and say, hey, you have a problem. What I would not do, because I'm not under contract with Capital One, would be to download any information whatsoever. I'm simply pointing out, hey, I've discovered a flaw. And those are things that we have done before when we've discovered stuff just on the periphery of, oh, geez, like we found a way into this system that's being hosted for one of our clients. So we will basically call the hosting platform to say, hey, we found this vulnerability. You guys really need to fix it. Just a heads up. You know, this is we're all friends here. That's good faith. So what Paige Thompson did was anything but she stole information. She posted about it online. She was not she might have been using the same tools that we might use, but she wasn't acting ethically. Her intent was not good faith. So there you go. That's a very interesting one. And that's why I spent a little time explaining that. But let's move on because we have more data breaches. The next one is a big one again with Kaiser Permanente. They recently disclosed a data breach that exposed the health information of more than 69,000 individuals. The company revealed this in a notice that was published on their website, and they said that an attacker had accessed an employee's email account containing personal health or protected health information on April 5th of um, of this year, and obviously done without authorization. We are talking about names, first names and last names, medical record numbers, dates of service, lab test result information, and more. Moving on, let's talk about MCG Health, because they reported a data breach after discovering that an unauthorized party obtained certain personal information about affected individuals that match data stored on their system. Now, according to MCG, we are talking names, social security numbers, medical codes, postal addresses, telephone numbers, email addresses, 
dates of birth and gender of certain patients and members being compromised. Now, on June 10th of this year, they filed an official notice of breach. They are a supply chain hit, and by virtue of that, we have seen hospitals in the last few weeks have to come out and basically declare data breaches because they were using MCG as a provider. That would be Avera McKinnon Hospital and University Health Center in Sioux Falls, uh, South Dakota, as well as Phelps County Regional Medical Center. Um, I do not know how many people in Sioux Falls were affected, but with Phelps County, we have 12,062 patients, and I really suspect we're going to see a lot more, so I'll keep you up to date on that one. Moving on, let's talk about iCare Leaders. This isn't actually an update from their breach. They are also a medical chain supply provider. Texas Tech University Health Service, uh, excuse me, Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center uh, actually had to declare a breach as a result of that. I'll keep you up to date there. Moving on, let's talk about cannabis delivery company, Unrivaled Brands, also known as Silver Streak. They reported a data breach stemming from a misconfigured web application that caused personal information to be accessible on the company's website. Now, according to Silver Streak, the breach resulted in the names, dates of birth, addresses, driver's license numbers, and email addresses of certain individuals being compromised. On June 17th, they declared a data breach as well. So if you use Silver Streak or unrivaled brands for all of your cannabis delivery needs... Heads up, you might have gotten hit. Moving on, let's talk about Uber. Uh, this is an update to their 2016 horrific breach. It was so bad, I have actually never used Uber since I learned about this in 2017. Now, here's what's going on. A U.S. judge on June 28th threw out an attempt to dismiss wire fraud charges against a former Uber employee accused of trying to cover up basically this computer crime. Former Uber Executive Security Chief Joseph Sullivan is set to face criminal charges after U.S. District Judge William Oreck uh, rejected his claim that prosecutors did not quote-unquote adequately um, allege that the goal of the claimed misrepresentation of the security breach was to get Uber drivers to stay with the platform and continue to pay service fees. Now, in December of last year, a federal grand jury handed down a superseding indictment adding wire fraud to the list of charges pending against Sullivan for his role in the alleged attempted cover-up of the 2016 security breach. If you recall, 57 million users and driver records were stolen, including credit card information. Essentially, this is what happened. They got hit. They stole 57 million credit cards, could easily have run identity theft or used these credit cards, yours, mine, anybody else that used Uber at this time. And Uber basically elected to pay um, the attacker about $100,000 or so to keep it quiet. It eventually leaked out. And here we are. Uber has a horrible reputation in terms of corporate health. <clears throat> Moving on. Let's talk about AMD. This is the massive chip maker. They say they're investigating a potential data breach after Ransom House, a relatively new data cybercrime operation, claimed to have extorted data from U.S. chip maker AMD. Now, an AMD spokesperson talking to TechCrunch said that the company is, quote, aware of a bad actor claiming to be in possession of stolen data. An investigation is currently underway. Now, a portion of the stolen data leaked by Ransom House and seen by TechCrunch suggested AMD employees were using passwords like password or one two three four five six 
or welcome one. Now, other data posted by the group appears to include network files and system information. It's unclear if a ransom demand has been made to AMD, but Ransom House advises its victims to contact the support team, etc., etc. So that is pretty ridiculous, especially for an organization like AMD that should really be drinking the cybersecurity Kool-Aid to have passwords that are password. That's ridiculous. Come on, AMD. If that's true, you got to get it together. Moving on, let's talk about the NFT or non-fungible token giant known as OpenSea. They are warning users of email phishing after a data breach. Now, basically, here's what's going on. A staff member at customer.io, this is an email vendor contracted by OpenSea, misused their employee access to download and share email addresses of OpenSea's users and newsletter subscribers with an unauthorized external party. There you go. Now, the scale of the security breach appears to be massive. And I quote, if you have shared your email with OpenSea in the past, you should assume you were impacted, end quote. They also added that they are working with customer.io in this ongoing investigation. They've reported to law enforcement, etc. But if you're into NFTs and you're using OpenSea, the largest NFT platform out there, be prepared to be fished. Make sure you make sure you've got good cyber hygiene. Don't click on links you don't know. Go to OpenSea directly. Don't click on links. So with that, let's keep on moving and talk about Geographic Solutions or GSI. This is used by labor and workforce agencies in a number of U.S. states. So GSI was forced to shut down basically state labor exchanges and unemployment claims systems, and basically as many as forty states here in the United States, as well as Washington D.C., that rely on GSI could obviously be affected. Now, in a statement to media, GSI President Paul Toomey said that the company, quote, identified anomalous activity on our network, end quote, and took its services online, they offline. They did not elaborate whether they were hit with ransomware or something else. Obviously, this is a huge problem. They were hoping to have everything up by July 4th, or rather the July 4th weekend, from what I understand so far, as I am literally sitting here talking to you on July 4th, that didn't happen. So we're going to see what happens. But heads up to you, if you've got any kind of labor claims with your state, odds are you're in the four out of five states that have been affected and DC. And finally, and we actually have three different finalists for you today. First things first, we're actually going to talk about TikTok. Now, I did a video slash podcast on this one the other day, but I think it's beyond an important topic, uh, you know, for one of my finalists for today. And so this obviously is going to be briefer than than the full video and podcast I did. I do again, I do them daily, but this is so important. Here's what's going on. BuzzFeed's Emily Baker White had a really great article on this. And so I'm going to either be quoting or paraphrasing her heavily, not to mention my own thoughts, obviously, as I'm I'm talking about this. Now, here's what's going on. According to leaked audio from more than 80 internal TikTok meetings, China-based employees of ByteDance have repeatedly accessed non-public data about U.S. TikTok users. ByteDance is based in Beijing. They've got heavy ties to the Chinese government. Chinese nationals in China are accessing your U.S. TikTok information from behind the scenes. Now, these recordings, which were reviewed by BuzzFeed News, contain 14 statements from nine different TikTok employees indicating that engineers in China had access to U.S. data between at least September of 2021 and January of 2022. And I say at least because obviously the, that is a time frame of the recordings, but I guarantee you they had access from the beginning and they probably still have access now. So 
There you go. Now, despite TikTok's executive sworn testimony in October 2021 Senate hearing that a quote-unquote world-renowned U.S.-based security team was actually the one who decided to get access to that data, nine statements by these eight different employees describe situations where U.S. employees had to turn to their colleagues in China to determine how U.S. data was flowing. U.S. staff did not have permission or knowledge of how to access the data on their own, according to these uh, recordings. And from there, I want to pivot into basically more information that I touched on uh, regarding China's laws over the collection of foreigner data. Since 2014, China's basically been blamed for a series of huge data thefts. They include individual records taken from, uh, you know, credit agency Equifax, 145 million records. Uh, they were also blamed for Marriott, 400 million, the health insurer Anthem, which is a Blue Cross Blue Shield provider, 78 million, the U.S. Office of Personnel Management for 21 million. They store sensitive files on government u.s government workers including fingerprints and information security clearances china's law basically says that if you are a chinese-based company such as tiktok aka ByteDance, out of beijing that the chinese government gets access to all data on foreigners there you go and this is essentially what it is tiktok and i've said it for years is a surveillance app for the Chinese state first, a stupid video app second. We need to really start waking up to this, and this is so unbelievably important. Recently, one of the FCC commissioners came out in late June, early July, and basically chastised Google and um, Apple for allowing TikTok to still be part of their uh, app stores, respectively, even though they're violating so many terms of services. He requested that they give him in writing an explanation as to why by July 8th, those two those apps in both of those stores is still there. Now, while he doesn't have the full backing, he's one of multiple commissioners. This is basically a shot across the bow. I am hoping something happens with this. TikTok, again, is a surveillance app first for the Chinese state, a stupid video app second. And our next, finally, actually talks about California gun owners. Now, a data breach in the state exposed the personal information of every person with a California permit to carry a concealed weapon, according to authorities this past Tuesday, late June. Now, the California Department of Justice suffered this breach as part of its 2022 firearms dashboard portal, according to the Fresno County's Sheriff's Office, which said it was informed of the leak on Tuesday by California State's Sheriff's Association. Quote, this public site allows access to certain information, however, Personal information of concealed carry uh, weapon permit holders is not supposed to be visible. This includes, but is not limited to, a person's name, age, address, criminal identification, index number, and license type, meaning standard, judicial, reserve, and custodial. Now, this breach affects, as I said, all concealed weapon permit holders in the state of California. The Justice Department now pulled down the dashboard site along with all related links after learning of the breach, but it's basically possible that some private information was uh, stolen or posted online somewhere else. Quote, it is unknown exactly how much time the information was accessible, end quote. Again, that is from the Sheriff's Office. Now, California Attorney General Rob Bonta's office told law enforcement it is, quote unquote, working with urgency to determine the breach's scopes and plans to contact permit holders to directly advise them. Bonta's office will also institute a program to mitigate harm or damages that permit holders suffer as a result of this breach, according to the sheriff's office. Quote, 
We are investigating an exposure of individuals' personal information connected to the DOJ firearms dashboard. That's according to the Attorney General's office, uh, their statement from their office, quote, any unauthorized release of personal information is unacceptable. We are working swiftly to address the situation and will provide additional information as soon as possible. Now, obviously, California is a, you know, considered pretty much a blue state. I'm not getting into politics here, uh, but we may see potential backlash against basically concealed carry permit holders if that entire list gets leaked out into the public. On top of it, it now builds a roadmap for the theft of firearms, meaning, you know, you're a gang, you need to get guns. Why not case out a whole bunch of houses where there are concealed permits? Because odds are they're going to own guns. They go to work. You break into the house. You find the guns. Boom. Free stolen gun. That obviously is a huge, huge problem. So with that, that's all I've got for you um, You know, on that one. But it's a huge problem. So if you are a concealed permit holder, concealed carry permit holder in the state of California, you definitely want to check in with Attorney General Bonta's office. They may have information for you. And finally, finally, we have to talk about China's worst data breach ever, possibly their worst data breach ever, because here's what's going on. A database purportedly containing information of 1 billion Chinese residents has been listed for sale on breach forums for 10 Bitcoin or approximately $200,000, or I mean $192,000, or I mean, I'm sorry, $178,000, that's $210,000. You get what I'm saying? Total joke. Bitcoin, not stable. But 1 billion Chinese residents caught up in that. That is utterly massive. We are also talking about the most populous country in the world. So there you go. Now, that post attracted 177 replies and 300,000 views within hours. And the listing was posted a short time ago by an anonymous user going simply by China Dan. Quote, in 2022, the Shanghai National Police database was leaked. This database contains many terabytes of data and information on billions of Chinese citizens, according to the post. Quote, databases contain information on 1 billion Chinese national residents and several billion case records, including name, address, birthplace, national ID number, mobile number, all crime slash case details. (laughs) Now, the seller has provided what he claims is a sample data set with 750,000 files from the database. That's the sample. The sample is three quarters of a million records. That is probably the largest sample size I've seen for a data breach of that size. That is just bonkers. Now, this basically, now obviously there's debate, you know, is this legit or not? Uh, You know, many users that have actually seen this looking at this saying, yeah, no, this is absolutely valid. And so overall, the consensus, while there is debate, the the majority think this is actually legitimate. I think this is going to give us a really interesting insight into how the Chinese government operates, though. And I think that's one of those things that, that we don't see as a very closed society, an authoritarian society, and the largest surveillance state in the world, what we understand from the legal system is that essentially you are guilty and you got to prove yourself innocent. That is obviously the reverse of here, where in the United States, you are innocent and the state has to prove your guilt. So here we are. But it's going to be really interesting to see uh, what they categorize as a crime, how they're categorizing as a crime, what the punishments are, how they're tracking their people. Again, the largest surveillance state in the world, they are monitoring everything. So I think this will be a really interesting look for privacy and legal researchers. We'll see if it gets out there. But obviously, that is a huge black eye for the Chinese government. Uh, They pride themselves on their security. They pride themselves on their secrecy. I'm sure heads are going to roll 
hopefully not literally, over this one. And those were your breaches of the week. Were you affected? Well, if you're listening to me from China, you absolutely were. And you're listening to Nick Espinosa, the Deep Dive Radio Show, a syndicated radio show, here in podcast form on SoundCloud. And make sure to check your local listings so you can catch it on a radio station near you. And now for the deep dive segment where we take a closer and deeper look at a cybersecurity, cyber warfare, or technology issue around us. And if you have any suggestions for a deep dive segment or something you'd like me to dive into, you can once again find me on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can send an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. That's questions at securityfanatics.com. I am more than happy to take a look at it. And uh, if it meets our standards, we are more than happy to do a deep dive on it. So let's begin. And this week's deep dive is kind of near and dear to my heart. I'm entitling it How Facebook is Going to Kill Society. You may already think they've killed it. You may not realize all of the things that are going on. You're also listening to the guy that did a video a few years back called It's Time to Put Mark Zuckerberg in Jail, where I list out, due to primary sources, a litany of sins over the years. But we have some new information here that I think is just beyond important. And while I'm going to do a 2.0 version of the It's Time to Put Mark Zuckerberg in Jail video and podcast, I actually think I even did on the radio show now that I'm thinking back in the day. Um, this is obviously going to be one that I think is going to be added to that. But we're going to talk about about how basically Facebook is going to kill society. And I think this is an important topic. And basically anyone in the country, um, you know, in a country that that basically considers themselves a democracy or even an anocracy really needs to consider a lot of what I'm going to be talking about here. Now, this was prompted basically by a recent article in Vice News, and I'm in the process of writing an article with a much larger footprint and context than the one uh, that Vice did, but they really got me thinking on this one. And here's the primer for this discussion. It comes from David Gilbert of Vice News, who I think I'm going to be paraphrasing and quoting quite a bit here just in my notes as I'm talking to you, because it was really a good article, well-written that he had. And here's what's going on. In 2018, Mark Zuckerberg claimed that he cared about making sure Facebook wasn't used to do things like undermine democracy. And I quote Mr. Zuckerberg, the most important thing I care about right now is making sure no one interferes in the various 2018 elections around the world. If you recall, Facebook is global. The United States is not the only one that obviously has elections that can be hindered or hampered or affected by Facebook and misinformation. Now, Zuckerberg also said basically during that marathon five-hour testimony to Congress in April of that year, which was a disaster on the congressional side. It was just horrible questioning. I wish, oh, I would have done it for free if they had just given me time with that man. I would have had him broken down. So basically, he was grilled in that, if you recall, about how the Kremlin weaponized Facebook during the 2016 election to spread disinformation and chaos. If you don't think that happened, you can actually go download and read all of the internet agencies' ads that essentially uh, they put out there. Those have been fully curated, exhaustively explored. I mean, we even know the we even know the address of essentially where they were putting this stuff out from, meaning the actual physical building they were using in Moscow. It's crazy. Now, fast forward to 2022. And Zuckerberg really doesn't care anymore. He's more concerned, obviously, about money and now, obviously, his precious metaverse. Now, as the crucial midterm elections approach in the United States, two new reports 
give credence to the claim that Zuckerberg now really doesn't care about securing elections, and he cares a lot more about his shiny new project. Now, the New York Times reported about a week or two ago that basically Zuckerberg no longer meets regularly with his election team anymore, and his top priority is instead, obviously, the metaverse. Now, the report also revealed that the number of employees uh, dedicated to monitoring election threats has basically been gutted from 300 full-time members in 2020 down to just 60. And when you were thinking about just how vast just how vast the U.S. election infrastructure is, and then you add on the vastness of every other election infrastructure that has elections going on, uh, you know, usually coinciding with the um, the United States or even in in years that the United States doesn't have it. 300 people globally is like a drop in the bucket. They need 30,000 just for that, I think, you know, and on top of that, they're down to 60 right now. That's crazy. Now, as an example of how this outlook could allow election conspiracies to thread, uh, to spread basically unchecked on the platform, the New York Times pointed out that Dinesh D'Souza's um, new film, 2000 Mules, racked up 430,000 engagements on Facebook this month. I'm actually going to do a deep dive into uh, 2000 Mules. If you know how GPS cell phone tracking essentially works, it flies in the face of what he is trying to claim in that movie. I just shook my head the first time I saw it. I'm like, you, he is crafting a narrative that does not fit how technology works. It's, you know, or even the, even the election laws in the States he's claiming. But again, I digress from there. That is considered misinformation by all accounts. And basically Facebook let it go unchecked. Now tracking how disinformation spreads on Facebook can also be a very difficult task, but a tool called CrowdTangle, which Facebook purchased in 2018, has now become a critical way for researchers and journalists alike to track new disinformation trends around elections. Facebook, which has historically been averse to sharing information with researchers, looks like they're going to be phasing out this tool as well. So that's awesome. They're cutting their election staff. They're not giving the researchers uh, the information they need to check and look at disinformation and misinformation, this is, uh, he just doesn't care. Now, the shutdown of the CrowdTangle uh, platform began last year with most former employees leaving or being assigned to roles in other parts of Meta. Obviously, that's the new name of Facebook. Now, in January of this year, Meta paused the ability of new users to register for CrowdTangle, and that's a hold that's still in place. No new features have been added in the last 16 months, and researchers have reported that the tool isn't working as expected. The reason for this, according to a Bloomberg report the same week as uh, the New York Times, is that fewer than five engineers on Facebook Facebook's London Integrity team were working to keep CrowdTangle operational. They are shutting down the critical tools and the critical processes that we need to stop the flow of demonstrably fake information. This is nuts. This also means that there's now very little support for many organizations that use CrowdTangle. That's a tool that's also used by journalists, researchers, academics, human rights organizations, and places like Myanmar, which literally saw a genocide fueled by disinformation on Facebook and Sri Lanka, where also they were accused of facilitating a genocide Facebook was. So this is obviously a huge problem. And researchers are obviously fearing that things are going to get worse coming into November in these very hotly contested midterm elections here in the United States. A spokesperson for Meta told Bloomberg that CrowdTangle would work for the 2022 midterms just as it did for the 2020 elections, including the president, adding that the company has plans to, quote unquote, make an even more valuable tool for researchers, though they did not elaborate on those tools or when they would be available. 
But as one expert pointed out, the replacement system proposed by Facebook so far is not up to snuff. Now, Dr. Rebecca Trombel, she is the director of the Institute for Data, Democracy and Politics, tweeted this out about a week ago or so. And I quote, the system proposed to replace CrowdTangle is so far terrible, but most importantly, it's inaccessible to journalists who are the bulwark for public accountability and democracy. If I can access CrowdTangle and journalists can't, we all lose. And that is a very good point. Journalists keep the government honest. A free press is essential, and anybody undermining the free press is essentially not understanding that they're an authoritarian in my view, or they have autocratic tendencies. That's a huge, huge problem. The press keeps us honest. I know people are going to shake their heads. I don't want hate mail on it. I'm probably going to get it, but let's continue. Now, The U.S. midterms are just one election taking place this year. Obviously, most Americans, very American-centric, think about this. But across the globe, there are dozens of others that remain vulnerable to disinformation that is being shared on Facebook. And aside from elections, there are numerous other events which CrowdTangle could be used on how to track dangerous narratives that are being shared online. So, for example, Mark andre Argentino, an extremism researcher and Ph.D. candidate at Concordia, also tweeted about this, and I quote, This tool was crucial to the analysis of COVID-19 information, threats from the Boogaloo Boys following the death of George Floyd, hybrid threats, etc. So many colleagues, journalists, and researchers benefit greatly from CrowdTangle. Now, Facebook has almost 3 billion monthly users, and for hundreds of, hundreds of millions of Americans, Facebook is still the primary way they communicate online and their main source of news and information. And that is one of the things I've talked about where you have this inner circle of your friends, you like your friend, you trust your friend, your friend basically posts false information that seems to align with, let's say, their viewpoint. You trust that friend and say, oh my gosh, you know, he or she is on to something. I better share that too. And this is how these things spread. It's a huge, huge problem. And with the midterms approaching, Facebook and Zuckerberg's focus on making money in the metaverse is obviously a very worrying development. They need to basically be able to walk walk here, walk and chew gum here, meaning if they want to work on the metaverse, that's great. But if they are not doing anything to curb misinformation and disinformation, they're going to make it a thousand times worse. Now, on top of all of this, there's also recent news that Facebook was violating your healthcare privacy in conjunctions with hospitals all over the United States. Essentially, researchers took the Newsweek top, Newsweek's top 100 uh, hospital systems in the United States and basically went looking for essentially Facebook code embedded into the websites. And 33 or one third of the top 100 hospitals, not to mention probably a zillion smaller healthcare facilities and hospitals and all of this, had something in their websites known as Metapixel. Now, I bring this up to say that if you go to one of these hospitals' website to, let's say, you know, make an appointment, oh, I need to go, I don't know, see my gastroenterologist because I think I have a kidney stone, and you're laying all of these things out on this site, basically the pixel, this tracking pixel, from Meta was taking that information that, okay, you basically commit, you basically, you are, let's say I'm Nick, I just made a a appointment with Dr. Smith, a gastroenterologist for this, like for kidneys or whatever it is, and then boom, it's getting sent to Facebook. Facebook was actually collecting this. There is no working consent between the hospitals and the, um, and Facebook. And so Facebook and the hospital that you've been using are potentially, if your hospital is doing this, is violating your privacy uh, on the healthcare side by giving this information to Facebook. 
And Facebook is collecting this, and they were totally fine with it for obvious reasons. Facebook is one of the latest data miners in the world. That is such a huge problem. Here's what's going on with this. And finally, we also have to talk about social media platforms in general because they are becoming targets for political machinations and laws that are helping to drive a wedge even further into society. And obviously, that is essentially another way that Facebook is is essentially going to help kill society. They are allowing disinformation and misinformation to go unchecked again. They are collecting information on you, but now they are basically targeted in politics. And while that's not necessarily their fault, it is kind of their fault. And here's what's going on. And let's start with the backdrop on this, because a surprise ruling a couple of weeks ago by a panel of three federal appeals court judges allowed Texas social media law to go into effect. This has led to basically panic befuddlement among tech policy experts wondering how on earth platforms like Facebook could possibly comply even if they wanted to, and what options the services have for challenging the ruling. Now, these judges ruled two to one that the law should be effective while they hear an appeal by two big tech trade groups of a district court injunction that initially put this measure on hold. The judges did not immediately publish their reasoning, but the move will force social media companies to face a legal environment that could threaten the core, basically could threaten their core content bans, moderation practices, and ranking algorithms that have allowed them to flourish since the 1990s. And here, basically, is the nuts and bolts of that. With HB or House Bill 20 now into effect, Texas users can sue platforms like Facebook or Twitter or Take Your Pick if they believe they've gotten, quote-unquote, censored for their viewpoints. This is essentially a vague premise. This was politically motivated. It was designed by, basically, the Republican Party and the conservatives in the Texas the state house to claim that big tech unfairly silences them and downranks their content. We'll talk about that in a second. Now, until that week, industry observers widely expected the court to uphold the block on this law. In addition to the lower court's injunctions on a different federal court, they also paused a similar Florida law, finding that it violated the First Amendment in seeking to punish private companies for their views and treatment of content. Those decisions also echoed extensive Supreme Court precedent, not that apparently that matters anymore, and to quote, but instead the Fifth Circuit judges appeared to struggle with basic tech concepts during a Monday hearing, including whether Twitter counts as a website before issuing Wednesday's startling decision. Now, Matt Schruers, who is the president of uh, the basically the Computer and Communications Industry Association, that's one of those two big groups that is challenging the law, said in a statement that, quote, no option is off the table as far as challenging the ruling and the statutes. A lawyer for NetChoice, that's the other big one, said that they will absolutely be appealing this. Now, one option for these groups is to seek what is known as an NBank or NBank appeal, basically a rehearing by a larger panel of judges on the same court instead of three, I believe it's seven, um, which basically would, um, you know, possibly change up the rule. This particular circuit, though, is considered the most conservative circuit in the United States. But the decision um, a couple weeks ago may signal that even a larger group would come into basically a similar conclusion. And, uh, and that's according to David Green, a civil liberties director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Now, the EFF supports platform suits in this brief. The law is in con- unconstitutional, according to Green. And I quote, my hope is that at some point point 
a court will agree with that and strike the law down. But I think that's only going to happen at the Supreme Court level. Now, there are two ways that companies could end up at the Supreme Court here. They could skip the en banc hearing and start appealing the Supreme Court directly, or they could try to bring the case thereafter another loss in appeals court. But the majority of the nine justices on the Supreme Court might not see a reason to jump in at this stage and could instead hold for a time um, when the companies actually start facing lawsuits permitted by the Texas statute. So basically, This is reinforcing the wedge between the right and the left to the point where the right appears to be trying to make punitive laws against what they perceive as censorship, even though multiple, and I've talked about this before, academic studies have concluded that posts posts that are politically right-leaning on Facebook by far get the most virality and spread the most. Meaning, this is now a wedge issue for politicians to say, we need to create our own social media platforms, we need to move to Parler and True Social and all that, because the Facebooks of the world are censoring us when the opposite appears to be demonstrably true. Now, on top of that, this law, essentially, one, is now dictating, um, essentially, to Facebook what they can and cannot consider censorship, which is something that basically has traditionally flown in the face of the pro-business party that was the Republican Party. But they don't like the politics, potentially, of Facebook, and here we are. And I'm not getting into politics, but think about it this way. I And I talked about this uh, before. Due to this Texas shooting rule, or I'm sorry, due to this Texas rule about censorship, when we look at the live video stream that the, um, not the Uvalde shooter, but the Buffalo shooter, when uh, that guy, basically he put out a six, seven minute video of him driving around and then getting out of a car in front of that supermarket in Buffalo, New York and opening fire. I have unfortunately watched that horrific, horrific video that may have to go up because if somebody in Texas completely agrees with that shooter, that person in Texas now has the ability to sue Facebook or Twitch, where this was originally streamed, to say that that Twitch basically violated his constitutional rights. He is being censored. His viewpoint is being censored because a video he agrees with is being taken down. That is how ridiculous we are talking about here. And so when we are looking overall at the context of society and how social media essentially fits in, we can see that given all of the issues that we've got here, uh, you know, from the privacy violations to the healthcare violations to, you know, absolutely everything going on to them shutting down the tools that we need to track disinformation, cutting the staff that helps us thwart or look for these things so that we can alert the general public and say, hey, what you're seeing is fake. If those things are going away, we're going to be even in a worse condition now for 2022 and beyond, because essentially, as we are looking at the misinformation and disinformation campaigns over the years, they're getting consistently better as they are essentially looking at how the past campaigns have worked, what hasn't worked, et cetera, et cetera. And this is going to get continuously worse. I see people talking about basically dis, like points of, of, you know, quote unquote fact that really come from talking points that I've seen foreign intelligence governments put out in my work, you know, in cybersecurity and cyber warfare. This is absolutely ridiculous, but this is where we are as a society. And if Facebook is going to do this, it's even more reason and it's even more time, you know, to put Mark Zuckerberg in jail, but it's also time to shut down the Facebooks of the world. I mean, think about it. People were angry back in the AOL days, but it was nothing like this. And I think that's something society-wide that we need to talk about because obviously it's a huge, huge problem. And here we are. And so that is your deep dive of the week. And thank you so much for tuning in this week. It was another fun show. And I think we covered a lot of really good stuff. And I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. 
it's a really good time. And I hope you keep tuning in. Thank you very much for listening to the Deep Dive Radio Show here with Nick Espinoza. And if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, absolutely anything, once again, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. And you can always send an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. Don't be shy. I love the feedback. We've been having a great time with the show. And as always, stay safe and stay online, everyone. Thanks for listening.